So, deserving listeners out there, I'm sure you've heard of the term helicopter parenting. And today, I want to talk more about that. I want to go into the definition. I want to talk about the, the origin of the term. I want to talk about the research regarding the effects on children, why it's emerged in our culture, and advice for parents and for therapists out there that are helping parents with this sort of thing, and for society in general. And as a part of that, I invited a guest, Rebecca Bloom, to come on the show and to help me talk about this. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. It's so good to be here. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle, and I'm also a licensed marriage and family therapist. Hi, I'm Rebecca Bloom. I have a private practice in Pioneer Square, and I tweet at rbloomatr. R. Bloom, ATR. Yeah. Rebecca Bloom, art therapist registered. Correct. Um, so let's. I like definitions. If you listen to the podcast, you know that I like to define things first so that we're not just throwing around a term like helicopter parenting without understanding what it is. Well, it, it, there's no official definition, of course. It's a cultural term. But a general definition is that it's a parenting style that involves the following elements. You hover over children figuratively and, and literally. You rescue them at the first sign of trouble. You always need to know where they're, where they're at and what they're doing. You dictate what they do at a majority of the time, if not all the time. And you don't let them roam and explore on their own. So those are definitions, behavioral definitions to the term helicopter parenting. Would you add anything to that, Rebecca? Uh, I would agree. And the one community that you left out in the introduction was the kids that then become young adults and step out into the work world and are not doing so great. I mean, that's, I see a lot in my practice. Right. People can't keep jobs. They can't keep roommates. They don't know how to get stuff done because they've never had to do all of those very subtle social interactions that we learn when we lose a baseball game and don't get a trophy, when we lose a friend and no one steps in to make sure that doesn't happen, when we get some B minuses. Yeah. So not only parents, but also for adults who grew up as children with helicopter parents, they might need help too. All right. So let's talk about the history a little bit. Mm -hmm. And this is just a brief internet search uh, history, so it could be wrong. But anyway, the, the metaphor appeared, the helicopter parenting metaphor appeared as early as 1969. Really? In the best-selling book titled Between Parent and Teenager by Dr. Haim Genot or Genot. So, uh, but the term helicopter parent didn't really emerge till later. And uh, it seemed to emerge in 1990 with Foster Klein and Jim Fay. They coined, they seemingly coined the term helicopter parent mm-hmm. as early as 1990. And American college administrators began to use it in the 2000s and the zeros as millennial as millennials began reaching college age as these helicoptered parented children came to college and started and their parents descended with them right and colleges were 
starting to see a difference in the way that in the way that children in the way that uh, college administration or uh, in the way that people were applying to the college and the fact that the parents were, were much more involved in the process and they didn't see that until the the 2000s uh, as as much as before S- did you know that the the does that surprise you that the term has been around that long? It does surprise me, um, but I also was doing similar research to you to try and get at the heart of it, and I loved this interview that I saw with Julie Lythcott Hames, who is the freshman student dean at Stanford, and was telling these stories of students arriving on campus unable to figure out how to get the boxes from the sidewalk into their dorm because they've never had to ask anyone for help before. So this way that we have not prepared children to make the transition into adulthood, uh, it's quite dramatic. And I have so many stories I'm biting my tongue. Let's go into some stories. I'll provide one and then you can provide one and we'll (laughs) alternate. Uh, These are general stories, not, well, no, this first story is actually from my life. I, for the past 10 years, have been doing a camp for, it's not my camp, but I'm the psychological consultant and run a bunch of the courses and the activities and whatnot. And it's for sixth through ninth graders, I believe. And they go to a camp up by Mount Rainier. And it's for many kids, particularly sixth, seventh grade, it's their first time they've ever been away from their parents. And mm-hmm. it's, it's overnight for a few days. And so there are kids and parents who have a very difficult time with that, with that transition uh, of going to camp. Uh, universally, after the first day, the kids and the parents seem to be fine, but it's that initial uh, step, you know. And... Um, so sometimes I will see parents that it's like it just doesn't compute to them because it's required for all these kids to go. It's a school camp that mm-hmm. they all that they all go to and it's a it's a public school and and so uh these parents will will come to me and they'll 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 just be looking at me like so so when where will I be sleeping or something and and we'll say oh I'm sorry if are you a parent chaperone? Have you signed up for it? And they'll say, "Oh no, I, I I'm not a parent chaperone." And it's like, "Oh well, then then you can't come actually because we we can't accommodate that." And they'll just look at us like, "What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Like I, that doesn't compute to me." And they'll say, "Well, could I just sleep in my car? You know, could I just is that is there is that against the rules?" And and uh, I I let the school kind of deal with that, but. Um, you know, I, I spend some time trying to suit the parents say, everything's fine. I've done this for 10 years. The kids never, there's never a problem. I'll be there if, if they have an issue and if there's an emergency, we'll, we'll drive them home. It's, you know, it's not like they're stuck. And so, and there's never a problem is the thing. The kids, the kids, the first night, they might have some difficulty, but they always get over it. What's, what's the story from you? 
Uh, I was thinking about a client that I had who has two young children, and this story is pretty typical of the pressures that are on current parents to somehow witness and be engaged in their child's life. And she was talking about this activity. And now, of course, in activities, you don't just drop your child off. First off, your child just doesn't walk the eight blocks to that activity like it was when I was a kid, but you drive that child to the activity. You don't drop them off at the door. Now you have to sit and watch them while they're at whatever lesson. And she was kind of down on herself, feeling like she was a bad parent. And she said to me, I'm not engaged as I watch him learn this skill. And I thought, of course you're not. (laughs) you know, please leave the building and let him learn that skill on his own. And you go do something that you love. This idea now that as parents that you have to kind of witness each step in your child's development. So you are there for this precious moment. (laughs) Um, We've gotten way off base. Yeah. Now, on one hand, you can say that there's another extreme where parents are not involved enough. Sure. And so it's not as if the notion is in error, it's a matter of balance. So, uh, of course, you should be involved in your children's lives, and of course, you need to witness them, but just perhaps not as much as culturally mandated currently. Yeah, it's um, it puts a tremendous amount of stress on marriages and our culture in general. I saw an interesting statistic that volunteerism among adults is down something like 50% from where it was 30 years ago. And I truly believe, having witnessed my peers, it's because all of what would be volunteer hours out in the community is spent bringing juice boxes to soccer games, you know, an hour away from your house. Right. Um, so there, it, I think it impacts our culture on a lot of levels. Right. Other stories are parents writing their kids' college application essays. Mm -hmm. That's another helicopter parenting element. Can I give a little story there? Yeah. Uh, Because I'm an art therapist and there are a ton of us, I get a lot of emails asking if people can come volunteer with me in any way. I'm in private practice, so just so everyone out there knows, you cannot volunteer with me in any way. Uh, But sometimes I get letters from parents. I'm looking for a college internship for my daughter. She's at X college right now. And I write back and say, your daughter should be directly contacting any senior living facility anywhere they need. They would gladly take her. But this idea that, like, I'm going to do a little research for her um, really disempowers people. (laughs) Yeah. Having said that, again, it's a matter of balance and it's not as if any particular behavior is innately destructive or problematic. Certainly parents can help. As an Asian person, I'll tell you that helicopter parenting is the norm, particularly for Koreans. I'm not Korean, I'm Japanese. But my Korean brothers and sisters in the community have, it, it's it's a cultural thing. It, it's very normal for parents to be heavily involved in your life throughout your life, making marital decisions for you. Uh, you might live with your parents for your entire life. So it's a cultural thing. So we have to be careful, but uh, it is worth considering. So it's not as if parents should not do A or B. It's a matter of trying to understand 
how to best parent your kids. And, and, and if you're having trouble with your kid, figuring out a way, and we'll provide some advice regarding that about having, uh, seeing the signs, so mm-hmm. to speak. And, and also, uh, how to, uh, push back on culture. Anyway, uh, other stories, kids not being allowed to walk to school by themselves as, as you, as you talked about. Yeah, uh, it is, you know, we're, we're back to stranger danger, which is a huge piece of this story that yeah. everybody's life must be coordinated because there is a lurking evil in out there. Uh, so the idea that um, it's perfectly safe in our neighborhoods for children to walk to school is quite revolutionary right now. I think it's coming back and I think it's incredibly important. Is it coming back? It's starting to come back. I feel like it's not coming back. <laughs> I feel like with some people it's, it might be coming back. But I feel like it might even be getting worse. Really? Yeah. I mean, there's. I don't have research in front of me, but maybe in your community, there's there's some coming back. But I feel like there we're far from where we should be in mm-hmm. terms of uh, understanding the probability that your child is going to be abducted and raped. Uh, I, I feel like most the vast majority of people believe that there is a swarm of windowless vans just circling your neighborhood, just waiting for you to turn your back on your child. And it couldn't be farther from the truth. And I'll, I'll get into some statistics on that in, in a second. Other stories, five-year-olds with cell phones. Do you, have, oh. you ever, have you experienced that before? In terms of as their only way of entertainment? As, th- as a way of being in contact with them. Oh, well, both, I guess, but but also as a helicopter parenting technique. As a, you use the GPS to know where they are at all times? Right, and to text them and to oh, wow. make sure that you can stay in contact with them. Wow. Uh, well, I can tell you in the middle school world, the current battle is should... Kid, should a middle school... Is a middle schooler even ready for a smartphone? Totally. Um, and the answer is actually No. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're like can get themselves in a lot of trouble. Um, yeah, not only that, but wh- do they need a cell phone? Is the thing, right. and the answer usually. And again, if your middle schooler has a cell phone, it's not innately bad, but the trend just really needs to be considered. And we, in our species, have been raising wonderful people without cell phones ever. And just because they want a cell phone, just because every other kid at the school has a cell phone does not mean that they need one. And without uh, monitoring, without proper guidance, it undoubtedly can be a destructive thing. And you're programming their brain during a critical point in their development to seek that reward. If you think people, adults now are addicted to cell phones, wait for the next generation. Because... A lot of them, since they were actually a year old, have been looking at these little swipeable screens. And I really worry about that. I agree. So let's go into some factors as to why helicopter parenting became a problem. Factor smackdown, because I'm so ready. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've already mentioned one, judgment of parents. I I feel like this is perhaps the, the... the biggest, I don't have any stats on this and it'd be a difficult thing to measure, but my estimation is the most important factor is f- uh, fellow parents or society judging parents for 
not helicopter parenting. Right. I think there is a current pressure that you are seen by the success of your child and that child must be successful constantly. Right. And if you are not, quote unquote, heavily involved in your child's life, then you are a bad parent. Right. Particularly moms, I should point out. Yeah, I think there is a lot of pressure. Uh, you know, what has your child done already? Mm-hmm. What language do they know? What sport are they excelling at? And I'm seeing this in middle school. I'm seeing it in seven-year-olds. I was just talking with a supervisee of mine, and they were talking about a family that was highly, highly concerned about grades and about success and resume building and not, they didn't say resume, but grades and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, how they're performing. And, and I said, how old is this? You know, I'm thinking like 16 and and she's (laughs) like, Oh, the, the, the son, he's seven years old, seven years old. And I said to myself, and I asked the group of supervisees I was talking to, I was like, when I was seven, uh, I don't remember having grades. I think my report card just had like a check mark, you know, <laughs> reading, check, math, check. And I don't remember, I, I'm, I'm positive we didn't have A, B, or C grades. Well, and I, there was a fantastic New Yorker article on this about four years ago. And the, one of the great points that it made was that our current standard of parenting is really used to only be accessible to royalty, that we are now raising our children as if they were royalty in France in the 1500s, in the sense of tutoring all of the outside extracurricular stuff that they're doing. Every other time in history, if you were lucky you went to school and you weren't working in the carpet factory and you know, maybe you were playing stickball out in the yard or my dad tells these amazing stories of growing up in Chicago as they were raising, as they were chopping down huge sections of the city to put in the L, the elevated trains. And him and his friends would just run through these construction sites at night until the sun went down. Yeah. And that's how he learned about how the world worked. Yeah. Um, But this idea now that, you know, my child doesn't play in the street doesn't play with neighbors, doesn't just go to a pickup game in the park on the weekends, but has these constant facilitated experiences, which are expensive. Yeah. Like select soccer. I see several parents really struggling. Should I continue my child in select soccer, which is incredibly expensive, really Competitive, And then these parents are told on a Saturday morning, you know, you need to be in Fife in 30 minutes for a game. So it, it impacts the entire family system. Right. And just a little bit about my childhood, since we're getting into that. I had particularly permissive parents that were wonderful, but particularly permissive. I walked a mile to school as a kindergartner by myself. I think my sister walked with me. Definitely in first grade, I was walking by myself. And there were other, all the other neighborhood neighborhood kids were walking to school by themselves too. And so we'd walk in a pack and, you know, interesting things would happen on the, along the way. And we would have adventures and there would, but no one ever abducted us and no one ever, you know, did anything. That, and there were bullies and, we had to learn how to cope with the bullies. We had to 
learn how to deal with each other on, on our own in the woods. And so, you know, and also there was a rule that we just had to be in by dinner or by, by dark, you know, by sunset, you know? And so at, as a young kid, six, seven, eight years old on a summer night, I'd be out till nine thirty, ten o'clock and we would just be roaming the woods and the neighborhood and getting into all sorts of weird stuff and nothing bad ever happened. And we learned how to be independent and learned how to get along with people and also learned how to entertain ourselves and learned how to deal with risk and to protect ourselves. And, and we always knew we could come home. I mean, that was the thing. It wasn't like we were being kicked out of the house. We would, we would come home when we needed to, and we'd go back out and, and we had that freedom, you mm-hmm. know, and today uh, in many communities, my parents would have been arrested for the way that they parented. And so not only would they be judged by other parents, but they would actually be CPS would be called and they potentially would have been prosecuted. There, there are many cases where parents are prosecuted for things that were the norm 30 years ago. <laughs> I don't see any children wandering in my neighborhood and it is full of kids. And I, did we talk about Halloween yet? How it's just starting to come back? No. I think the death of Halloween, my favorite singer, Greg Brown, has this amazing song about the death of Halloween. And uh, again, Stranger Danger, these, you know, this myth that there were razor blades and candy uh, took away Halloween for an entire generation of kids. And it's definitely, it's on our way, it's on its way back. Um, In our neighborhood, there are now packs of children screaming running without adults on without the, adults on their hunt for candy and it gives me so much joy yeah that it's back Good. because these are the that is the greatest moment of childhood yeah running through the night in a costume looking for candy i i can't remember my parents going out with me on halloween ever i don't remember my i remember my parents had other things to do that's what i remember I remember my parents had their adult lives that they lived and we didn't bother them. And I, I, on Halloween night was one of the, we would come home with a sack full of candy and they'd be like, Oh, good for you. And then, you know, uh, don't eat it all in one sitting or else you'll get (laughs) sick, you know? And, and, uh, that was it. Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah, certainly. And sometimes we were on our own, even for our costumes, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, and so, We'd have to problem solve that one, you know. How am I gonna how am I gonna make my Luke Skywalker costume? These are critical questions. Out of things that are in the closet. <laughs> my my brother w- had been in karate, and so I just got his gi because mm-hmm. that kind of looks like Luke Skywalker, mm-hmm. you know. And I think I got like a stick that kind of looked like a like a laser gun, and I just called myself Luke Skywalker. <laughs> Uh, another factor is fear on the news. You stranger danger. You alluded to that. I think nine one one or nine nine eleven might have had mm-hmm. a little bit to do with it. All the talk about child abduction. Some people identify famous cases in the eighties, but I just think it's just the rise of news in general. And if it bleeds, it leads, and or if it it if it abducts, it leads too. And 
it gives this false impression because we're not good about probability in our brains. We're not good with statistics. It, it, we hear more stories. Therefore we believe it's more prevalent. The fact is, is that it's crime is down. Abductions are down uh, and have been since the early nineties. If you ask the average parent today, if crime was up or down, violent or rape or abductions of children, they would say, Oh, it's up. You know, children are much, much, children are much safer in the past, they would say. But actually, that's not true. Children are by far the safest they've ever been in the history of the world, probably, as they are right now. Well, and I know this a lot from my friendships, that there's a tremendous amount of fear that somehow will harm our kids along the way. Uh, I think the quote I hear most often from my friends is, you know, He'll be processing this one in therapy for years. Uh, but there's definitely this idea that I will keep my child safe from strangers. And I always feel like I'm this horrible bearer of bad news that really who hurts children, people that they know, people that they're closest to. And, you know, I just I keep that party line with my friends. These, many of my close, close friends get stuck in these loops that their children are going to get attacked by a stranger. And I feel like I'm talking them down off a cliff. Like, really, if your child were to get hurt or assaulted, terrifyingly enough, it's going to be someone that you know. Right. Statistically and, speaking, the probability is someone you know, not a stranger. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I talk to a lot of parents as a as a family therapist, and, and what I tell parents instead of saying to them, everything's going to be okay, I say, oh, undoubtedly, your kid will be in therapy talking about all sorts of things, but that's normal. Everyone grows up with, no one, no one leaves their childhood unscathed. Everyone, everyone leaves their childhood with damage, and everyone needs to go to therapy eventually for that damage. That's just normal. Parenting is imperfect and you can't be perfect. And it's sad. You know, it's scary. Yeah. I, so there's a great uh, group in town called LifeWise and they do really great education for parents and they do a series for middle schoolers. And so I went to one and the question that they pose first is how do you keep your children safe? And all these parents were like, I don't let my child have sleepovers. I monitor their phone as soon as they come home. And I was starting to get really creeped out. And so I just raised my hand and I said, I model for my child pretty regularly that I make mistakes, the mistakes and <laughs> the disasters that I had when I was his age. And the whole room kind of shifted and looked at me and the facilitator lit up and they were like, great because that's where we're going today we're going to talk about mistakes and repair and it was like there was this level of shock in the room that it isn't about taking away every possible risk life is really about acknowledging that crappy stuff happens every day yeah and how do you find a way to deal with that you courageously like said something that you knew wasn't going to go over well. <laughs> and, and everyone just is stunned because they're like, wait, she just admitted that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another factor I think is high achievement standards. Ugh. 
It's the worst. Yeah. We're not all going to get A's. I didn't get A's. Yeah. I probably wouldn't get into graduate school these days. I was like a B student. If I got an A, it was a miracle. If I got a C minus, it was not a surprise in my house. Right. As you alluded to earlier, parents gauge their success in life and as a parent by their kids' achievement uh, achievements in school primarily. And now, for sure, if you want to help your kids do well in school, go for it. But not every kid is going to do uh, is going to get straight A's, and it's and it certainly is not the thing to focus on. I would give it like a distant tenth place on the things you need to be focusing on when you're worrying about the development of your child. I spend I can't tell you how I probably had this conversation actually. A, thousands of times with parents. I will say, uh, let me ask you this because I, I, they, they're coming in and they're, they've been in conflict with their teenager for three years because the kid isn't doing well in school and the kid is digging in further and just saying, you can't make me. And the parents are getting more and more upset and the relationship is falling apart and the marriage is falling apart and everyone is stressed out. And I say, and I say to the parents, okay, after I do a brief kind of trying to see if there's flexibility, if they're very rigid about it, okay, okay, you have two choices ahead of you. You you can raise a child, you can try to raise a child that is a straight-A student that goes to an elite university and gets an awesome job and is an asshole. And that, is miserable. And is miserable and can't regulate their emotions. And everyone hates this person, okay? <laughs> so that's option A. Option B is you raise someone that uh, gets occasional Fs in classes and doesn't do that well, gets into maybe an average college, maybe doesn't even go to college, gets kind of a regular job, doesn't love his job, but, you know, it's, it's fine. But everyone loves him. He loves you. You love him. He uh, spreads love in the world. He's compassionate. He's nice. But he doesn't make that much money. Which one would you like? Right. I don't want an unsuccessful child. I, I would rather, in their head, they're like, I think I'd rather have option A, but then they know that's ridiculous. Right. And so I say, okay, option B sounds better. Okay. So you are now on the path of creating A because you are, during a critical brain development period, you are creating stress for him. You are not connecting with him. He's becoming more distant, more angry, more of an asshole, frankly. And that will be set for the rest of his life. Whereas if you turn this around and let go of school and actually work on your relationship with him and have fun with him and let him have some flexibility and give him some self-esteem in areas that he can actually get it in, which is hopefully in relationships, then He's set for life. I'm telling you, he will be a wonderful person and he will probably be successful, more successful with option B because everyone wants a job that they like and everyone likes to be self-sufficient. So let's go with option B and just trying to get them off of the focus on achievement in school is very difficult. Right. I mean, are we trying to raise a civil and engaged electorate? Yeah. <laughs> Instead of lots of type A people who scream at each other. So I was, as we were preparing for this, I was thinking, who is my parenting guru 
who I use, who I refer people to the most. And it's Dr. Wendy Mogul, who wrote uh, Blessing of the Skin Knee about raising small children. And that book, the highlight of that book for me was Chores and Chores Early. And we got to talk about chores in a little bit. And then her book for teens is called Blessing of the B Minus. And this is a woman who has been a child psychologist in the hotbed of helicopter parenting. She was in Marin and now I think she's in outside of LA Um, and really instilling in people that the most important experience for a teen is not academic success, but is to know that their home base is loving. Right. So we've been, you know, raising a 12 year old right now and uh, we've instilled this new policy in our house of random acts of kindness. Mm. And I can't tell you how much it has changed his disposition. Because mm. the last thing he wants to hear from us is, why did you forget to turn in that assignment? Um, but the delight in, you know, let's have popsicles before dinner. <laughs> I mean, those are the moments of attunement, of connection that build a strong relationship so that when he really messes up, which is, he feels like he can call me, which is one of the most terrifying phone calls I have gotten recently, which he's home alone because he's 12 now. So we're giving him that freedom a few hours to be home alone. And I get this call. I've cut my finger. It's bad. I can't stop the bleeding by myself. And luckily, I was only 15 minutes away. But, um, you know, I was so glad he called me. Yeah. Right. That's what I'll often tell parents. I'll say, is there blood? Because (laughs) if there's not blood, then it can wait. But that was a situation where there actually was blood. There was blood. And I got home and there was every Band-Aid in the house was like out on the floor. (laughs) And he tried to do a lot one-handed. It was kind of impressive. Yeah. But we now have a rule no exacto knives when he's home alone. I just feel like that's a good. <laughs> Having said that, when I was a kid, I, I had free reign of the exacto knives <laughs> and was doing all sorts of stupid things with that. And, uh, you know, I, I emerged from childhood with only minor scars on my body. So you wanted to talk about chores early. Tell me about that. Well, I think chores are one of the number one things missing from parenting these days. I see it in my practice all the time. People, their children are no longer cute and fluffy and portable anymore. They're starting three, four, five. They're starting to exert their independence. And I'll bring up chores and allowance. And I'll get this blank stare back. You know, and the things that busy moms most often say to me is, well, I'd rather do it myself. I can just get it done it faster. I can't tolerate watching them. And I try and explain that you are, by giving your child chores, you are entering them into the fabric of society and teaching them what it means to participate. You're, you're training them how to get ready for a job. And, uh, and how to have self-esteem regarding a task that they do by themselves. Sure. And it's pretty amazing to see once chores are entered into a family system, how things tend to mellow out a little bit because the kid understands their job. They may complain to bloody hell about it all the time, but they're more participating in the family. I read an interesting statistic that 
up until the 70s, uh, children averaged 30 minutes of chores per day <laughs> in the household. Yeah. So this idea that, you know, a five-year-old can't clear the table. I mean, in any other time, they would have cleared the table, taken out the trash, walked the dog, you know, done all kinds of things. Yeah. So every time my son complains to me that, about a chore, he, he knows now, rolls his eyes and looks at me and says, I know, it's not, I haven't done my 30 minutes yet. <laughs> right. Yeah, chores, chores early help, helps them to have self-esteem, uh, helps them to feel like they're a part of the family, trains them for the future, and is definitely a good thing. And takes pressure off of who is still doing most of the work in our home lives these days, which is women. Right. So the moms are now, many of my clients, busting their butts at work all day, coming home, doing all of everything right. anyways. So uh, we really noticed this recently. My son hurt his back skiing and it was super cute. And the ER, the nurse was like, you can do your homework this week. She winks at us and says, but you can't do your chores. He was delighted. I worked my ass off <laughs> picking up all of the work that he usually does. I hadn't noticed like over, he's been getting a new chore a year since he was 12, since he was five. So he does like a couple of important things and having to add that back into my life, I was exhausted. Right. And many, again, the Oprah audience, I'm not blaming Oprah, but I'm just saying if we just took an average American suburban middle-class crowd of parents, they would say, that's shocking. That's child labor. You know, You, you don't, you shouldn't depend on your children for such things. And, I say absolutely depend on them. If they can pull their weight, uh, they're of an age where they can actually start contributing, then they should be contributing. Not because of child labor, like you're just going to you know, make them do everything and make them into slaves, but because you deserve to have them help, one. And two, they feel so much more self-esteem when they actually can do something that's actually useful. It's an actual gift to a child to allow them to contribute in a very real way. And, you know, five-year-olds, all they want to do is be adults. You know, they want to, I want to be a big boy. I'm going to be a big girl and I'm a, I'm going to work and da, 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 da. And to give them an actual thing that you actually depend on helps their development in a, in a big way. And it practically helps you. I just want to say, I don't want to, I, I want to, I'm going to sprinkle this in that if you're a parent out there and you're listening and you're, and you're feeling judged because you're not doing the things that we're saying, I just want to say, please do not feel judged. Parenting is complicated. There's many different ways to, to parent. That's another thing that I just want to say is like, when this debate happens about helicopter parenting, sometimes it, it is equally as judgy. And, and if you're, if you are a helicopter parent, then People who don't like helicopter parenting will just judge you and say you're a terrible parent because you're helicopter parenting. I don't want that to be the message. That Parenting is extremely uh, complex. There are many options available, and there are many considerations, and uh, so, so don't feel judged at all. It, it, as far as bad parenting practices goes, helicopter parenting is one of the more benign versions of bad parenting. There are, there are actual bad parenting practices like abusing your children or neglecting them severely or 
exposing them to certain things that, you know, there, there are actual things that are much more empirically damaging the children than helicopter parenting. So we're really talking about in terms of our culture, kind of the icing on the cake here. We're kind of splitting hairs regarding parenting. So I just want to throw that in there. And I've probably offended personally, you know, most of my friends in this. <laughs> I mean, that was my fear when doing this subject is that it is the norm for my friends to do select soccer. We all spend huge amounts of money on our children's birthday parties because none of us can imagine, I don't know, having three friends over for cake the way it was when I was a kid. You know, I mean, it's just, there's so much pressure and I'm right. in the middle of it all the time. Right. Well, you brought up birthdays. There isn't a single parent that I've talked to that enjoys the new cultural phenomenon of giving gifts to the guests. There isn't a single parent that enjoys that. So a lot of this discussion today is likely to be well-received by people. And if we all together just agree we're not going to do something, then we no longer have to do it. And so it's like... um, in the 70s, when all the women said, I'm not wearing a bra anymore. <laughs> and it it's, was fantastic. And it was fantastic. Well, we can do the same now and say, none of us are going to give gifts to the guests. That's fucking ridiculous. It's expensive. It's, it's um, indulgent. It's annoying. It teaches kids that they get gifts just for coming to a stupid birthday party. Um, if you have three kids... Three times a year, you're basically planning a little wedding. I mean, that, that's the way. That's true. When, right. I, when I talk with parents that have these birthday parties, the way they talk about these events, they are like little weddings. Mm-hmm. So I know who to blame. I've done some research, and I, I hate to blame this person, but I think I know the source. Are you ready? Yeah. I think it's Martha Stewart. Oh. I think it's this idea that every event... We all have the power to make every event kind of beautiful and memorable and unique. And so I was doing a little research, typing in children's birthday parties, and every, there was no alternative. Everything was how to produce a lavish, unique-to-your-child, you know, frozen-themed birthday party. Right. Complete with gifts. Right. When we were kids, a birthday party was three or four of your friends came over and you had, you had pizza and one soda can of pop and you had cake, which was like a crappy homemade cake. Although my sister still in the pan. Yeah. My sister would make these themed cakes. Like she made me a train once and like other kinds of things. But, but often it was just like, it, it, the cake was very uneventful, but you ate it because it taste, tasted good. And then you just played or you opened up presents and the presents were usually like very cheap, very cheap presents. Uh, I remember one birthday, I invited just one friend. I was turning nine, I think. And he gave me one of those planes that it's like a wood plane. Oh, yeah. And, you, and it had a rubber band mm-hmm. and you would twirl the propeller and then you just let it go. It's like... That thing's probably like a dollar. 
And I remember being a little disappointed, but I didn't really care. And then we went to see Star Trek, the motion picture. Sweet. The first Star Trek movie. The Wrath of Khan? No, the first one. Oh, I can't even remember the first one. Oh, the first one is strange. They tried to make it like 2001, kind of. And it was, I must have been 11, because I think that was 82. But anyway, or... 12. But anyway, we bought a big bar of Hershey's chocolate mm. and we each ate the entire thing before the movie even started. And we were the only one we, our parents didn't, they just dropped us off the movie theater <laughs> <laughs> and we got sick and, uh, and hated the movie cause it's very surreal and there's not a lot of action. And, but anyway, I loved it. Um, and today, yeah, I could totally see Martha Stewart. I forget how influential Martha Stewart was yeah. in the 90s. I remember there was like pre-Martha Stewart and mm-hmm. then post-Martha Stewart. For sure. Yeah. Well, and also now when uh, my clients who are parents are in my office stressing out about, you know, I haven't started planning my child's birthday party yet. I will say to them, just take a minute, take a deep breath. What's the... F- earliest birthday party you can remember having and they'll usually you know take a minute oh i think you know fifth grade sixth grade i did this so i'm thinking and i will say this out loud why are you stressing yourself out for something your child will never remember right that and the things you're stressing out about, they will particularly not remember. Right. How many gifts were in the gift bag? Or the particular expensive nature of the cake. Mm-hmm. Your kid, they don't care. They want to play with their friends. That's what they want to do. And it doesn't matter what knickknacks you put in the stupid gift bag. I think the gift bag thing is actually an atrocity on our culture. I, I've, now, having said this, if you want to throw an elaborate birthday party for your kids because you enjoy that, then by all means. But one, stop judging other people that don't do it. And two, if you don't want to do it, then don't do don't it. Don't do it. If you, feel, if you feel like it's an extra in your life, then stop it. Because it is not what good parenting is. What good parenting is, is when your, parent, was when your child feels loved, respected, cared for, and given the freedom appropriate to their age to explore the world and to come home and tell you about it. That's good parenting. Good parenting is not spending a bunch of money on a birthday party. Well, there's also this dynamic that everybody in the class has to come. So especially when your kids like two, three, four, your entire weekend is spent going to these huge overstimulating birthday parties uh, that have... 22 year olds you know it's and the kids get overstimulated and the parents are on the verge of tears who controls this crowd (laughs) of two-year-olds because that's a hard task well so you're at a bouncy house thing i mean i was always you know me i'm like watching my watch like when is this gonna experience gonna be over and it's like up some kid is crying thank god it's not mine i think it's almost time to go uh but i've some book on parenting i found from the 70s said only invite as many children who are your child's age for half their age. So if they're four, they can have two kids their age at the birthday party. Older siblings, cousins, that's fine. But I thought that was, the, I followed that advice for years. So we do a every three year thing. We have a big thing for our kid. Um, but in those off years where it's just two kids at a sleepover, ugh. 
so much better. It's so much better. And one more thing I need to talk about Chuck E. Cheese is so there are no no zones in our house, and the only birthday party I've ever turned down was a Chuck E. Cheese because I knew my child, the type of child that I have, and the type of person I am, so overstimulated. It would take days to come down. You know, there's like not every kid can tolerate every environment. Yeah. So we sent, especially for kids with sensory processing disorders or orders. I don't know if it's bad that you can't tolerate Chuck E. Cheese. But you put certain kids in those environments and then you're talking like a day or two to recover. Yeah. Yeah. So being mindful of that. Yeah. The whole birthday thing, I think, is 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 getting completely out of control. And again, you just have to be empathetic with children. What do they want? Right. They want to have fun. It well, has nothing to do with how expensive it is. And I think at this point, since everyone else around them is getting the these outrageous things, sometimes you have to do the hard sell on our family's going to do it this way this year. It's just best for everybody. It's okay. Yeah. Another factor is people are having fewer children. Mm-hmm. And so... Sorry, when you had nine kids, not every kid's going to Chuck E. Cheese. That's right, for sure. Right. And you didn't know where all your kids were. <laughs> you know, you might know where a few of them were, or you would depend on the older kids to take care of the younger kids. Right, right. And whereas now, a lot of people, one, one kid, two kids. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's actually plausible to be a helicopter parent with, with that situation. Whereas when, when I was a kid, you know, there's multiple, we had four kids in my family. There was no way you're going to helicopter all of us. Another factor is... Dif- difficult and distant conflictual marriages. There's a mm-hmm. lot of marriages that are suffering these days. And parents will turn to their children for companionship during that time sometimes. Yeah. And one of the effects of that is helicopter parenting. Uh, another a factor is fear of CPS. Mm-hmm. CPS has understandably and justifiably and a, a good thing, they've, they have more power now than they did in the past. And there's more laws on the books and there's more protection of children uh, with, with regards to physical and sexual abuse. There's more awareness. But the backlash to that is that many parents are terrified of making a mistake and erroneously believe that at the first sign of any minor transgression that the state is going to take their children away. You know what I mean? Yeah. For instance, parents in Maryland were investigated by their local Child Protective Services when their children walked home from the park unsupervised. Mm -hmm. So there's many situations like that. And that is a problem. Also, another cultural factor is that people will say 20s is the new teens, right? Yeah, we have the most protracted adolescence of any (laughs) culture anywhere. It's going into the 30s. I mean, at this point, the way the economy is, it's really hard to individuate. Right. So there are some practical issues with that. You need more education to compete in the job market now. So, you know, a lot of people 40 years ago didn't go to college. Most people didn't even go to college. So they were, they turned 18 and they just started a trade and they moved out and that was it. When I moved out in 1992, when I graduated from college uh, with $5,000 of undergrad debt, my first room in Seattle was $135 a month. Hmm. I mean, now it's what an average room goes for like $900 a month in Seattle. 
and people are leaving undergrad with $50,000 worth of grad debt. Right. And the income disparity is getting worse. And so the top, you know, 0.1% is just sucking up all the money. And meanwhile, uh, regular people are in real dollars, have less money. There's also a higher standard of living. I mean, back then in 92, sure. there was no such thing I as had, a cell phone. I or, had no car. No one yeah. had cable. Right. Yeah. Cable was like a super luxury back then. Now it's I was, like, if you didn't have cable TV, it's like there's something wrong with you. I right? was thinking about the Gary Shandling show, which was on HBO, right? One of his shows was on HBO. Yeah. I think it was HBO. And I was thinking I never saw it because I didn't have cable. Yeah. <laughs> that was like some outrageous thing. Right. Have cable. Watch the Gary Shandling show. Right. Another factor is that a, a lot of uh, families now, heterosexual families anyway, have two parents that participate in parenting rather than mm-hmm. just having just the mom do all the parenting. Right. And so you can conceivably have 24-7 round-the-clock helicopter parenting when, mm-hmm. there's t- when there's two people doing it. Another factor is the uh, cell phone revolution. Mm-hmm. You, you can actually monitor your children 24-7. There's apps on phones where you can monitor where they're at and you can text them anytime. When, when we were kids, our parents had to deal with the fact that when we went out and played in the neighborhood, they might not be able to find us. Mm-hmm. There was no way... They could, what are they going to do? My, my parents had a horn that they would, they would honk, honk and, and for us to come home. And, but you know, sometimes we didn't hear it. And so, so they had to just cope with the fact that, you know, they didn't know where we were. Mm-hmm. And today there is a way for parents to know where their children are at all times. So that's another, uh, another thing. Um, also as another minor issue is the rise of homeschooling. It's become more oh. more acceptable to homeschool your children, mm-hmm. which I think is a good idea. But what it does is it also just adds to the temptation to helicopter your children. Right. Uh, social media is another factor in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, I've heard several people in discussions about parents who post their grades, their children's grades and successes online, oh. which creates a culture of you know, pressure that, you know, my children, my child didn't get an A on that test. I know I've definitely been way more aware of how much of my child's life I put on my own social media. Um, I'm trying to pull back on that myself. It's kind of an addiction, but it's another way, like, look how cute and perfect my child is. And then you get a lot of feedback from that. Right. Again, not to say that posting cute pictures of your kids or proud moments of your kids on Facebook is a bad thing. It's just we just need to consider everything involved and whether or not it fits into the best course of action for your family. Um, There's many different ways to parent, and we're not going to judge any particular action. There's no judgment here. Yeah. And, uh, and people can be particularly judgy about, about what people do on Facebook. But along the lines of what you're saying, Rebecca, is I was speaking with a parent recently, and she said that she has now asked her son if whenever – she always asks his permission before she posts anything. Mm-hmm. And nine times out of ten, he says no. Yeah. And she wants to respect his wishes. I think he's like six or seven or something. And she also is thinking about the future because I'm curious what's going to happen to, and it's probably already happening, to children who 
grow up and they're 25 and they have stuff that was posted about them when they were five, 10 years old, that is actually damaging to them in some ways. Um, like a funny viral video of them making a fool out of themselves. I'm just wondering what kind of effect that would have on their lives. You know, Oh, you're that guy that was doing that funny dance in front of the mirror while your mom was filming you. Like you're that, you're that idiot. You know what I mean? Like I, I, it, I can imagine that that would affect you. So anyway, all right, let's talk about the effects of helicopter parenting. So bad effects. The main one I can identify is that I talk with a lot of people about is they can't launch their kids. Right. They can't get their kids out of the house. Mm -hmm. The kid doesn't want to leave. The kid doesn't have the self-esteem to leave. The kid doesn't uh, know what to do to leave. The kid has a lot of other kids his or her age that aren't leaving the house and they don't have any aspirations to leave. And, uh, I mean, I should take that back because in my experience, most kids, most young adults, deep down, they want to leave. They want to be on their own, but they are, they lack the skills and the sort of attachment. Now, that's really another thing that I want to throw in there is that this, this, this has to do to some extent, if not a, a large extent to do with attachment style. When you're, when you are raising your child, you want them to feel securely attached. Secure, secure attachment involves a balance between you being there for them and them having the freedom to leave you when they need to age appropriate. The analogy in the classic research is when you have a toddler and you walk into a new environment and you're in a new playroom or something and the kid at first is, is just glommed onto you, right? The kid's like, oh, I'm in a scary new place and I don't know what's going on. And I see toys over there, but I'm scared and I'm going to stay next to my parent and I'm not going to go. And then that's, that's normal. Kids should be able to depend on you in that way. Slowly over time, they start looking, oh, there's toys over there. And they, they crawl over to the toys, but they look back at you, make sure everything's okay. Maybe they come back, but then eventually they go and play with the toys and then they come back and then eventually they play with the toys longer. That's secure attachment. Reproachment. Yes. That is secure attachment. Uh, there is a such thing as being a preoccupied attachment or an anxious attachment where you can't ever leave your parent. Mm -hmm. And part of the facilitation of secure attachment is parents that are okay internally with the prospect of their child moving away from them. Of course, they should also be okay with their child moving toward them and responsive and attuned to the child's needs. But sometimes children uh, need to be forcibly allowed to explore the world <laughs> within reason, you know. And a lot of this happens in kindergarten when, you know, parents drop their kids off or preschool for the first time. But a lot of it also has to do with when they're 10 years old and they want to go to this class and, and learn an art therapy skill. And they're going to just be dropped off for two hours and they're going to learn on their own. Or they're just going to walk out the door and play in the neighborhood without any supervision. Both in my practice... And with friends and family, when I'm having the conversation of why is the young adult not leaving, there's actually a lot of it is kind of materialistic in an odd way that when you're now out on your own, you know, maybe it's shabbier and grosser than your parents' house. 
Now, when I was in my 20s, that was a sign of status. <laughs> and the, and I see that like that's kind of gone a, away, that a, our culture is so materialistic now mm. that the idea of living in that crappy apartment is really unattractive as opposed to living in your parents' basement, which is clean and dry and warm, and there's usually food in the fridge when you go upstairs like that i that uh that pride that came from living on your own is now not as attractive as the trappings of a middle-class lifestyle interesting i hadn't thought about that i think when we were young adults it was the grunge era and so where that you're wearing it right now, that plaid shirt that you got at Goodwill for 50 cents. That's right. And so, uh, and I'm shooting up heroin and I'm, <laughs> I smell like crap now. Um, we grew up in the grunge times when it was fashionable to be grungy. It was fashionable to be sort of gross <laughs> in some ways, not, not clean or not middle class punk, shall we say. DIY. And yeah. And, uh, now, yeah, perhaps it's different. Another effect is children can't emotionally regulate without someone yeah. telling them what to do. Yeah. Do you ever see stuff I like that? I really see this in my practice. And I talk with my clients about what I call the pizza party generation. That they were brought up with every, not even success, but just for showing up after it was all done. You got a pizza party and a statue, and you did a great job. Here's a certificate. Thanks for showing up. And then they get out in the work world, and none of that happens. And so there's all of these like workshops now that bosses of our generation and boomers now have to go to about how to handle millennials in the workplace because they need constant reinforcement that they're doing a good job. <laughs> and so I work with these a lot of people in my practice. We work with how do you self-regulate so that you don't need your boss's feedback so that you internally know that you've done enough today and you don't need your boss or your boyfriend or your to call your parents every day to check in to make sure that you've done a good job. Right. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it should be considered when thinking about the overall course of life with parents. As a boss myself, I like to shower my employees. I don't, I don't know if they consider employees, but people that are my coworkers and colleagues, I like to give them compliments. And I myself like to get compliments. So there's nothing wrong with that. But, but the pendulum might have swung too far. And if you, ex if you need it to survive in the world and it doesn't exist in the world, then perhaps a different way of parenting to help kids learn how to do that. Plus, when we grew up, you and me, there was no such thing as a participation award, or at least it was very rare anyway. And I don't remember feeling upset about that. You know, when, when we did uh, competitions and someone won... I don't remember it destroying my life. That yeah, I, then you just grumbled that that girl wins everything, and look at her, she won again. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. It's <laughs> like part of my, I can still picture her, Jocelyn. She won everything, but then it was just like one more thing that I didn't win, and look at Jocelyn. Right. There she goes. Right. A critical 
learning point for all children is that they're not the center of the universe and they're not the best at everything. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with allowing a four-year-old to believe that he or she is the fastest person on the planet. There's nothing wrong with that. But at a certain point, they need to start learning that they're not the fastest person on the planet. They're not the smartest person on the planet. They're not the center of the universe. They're not the best at everything. They're good at things and they, they work hard and they do good things, but they're not, they're not the best. And that's, a, that's an important thing we have to teach our kids. And so along those lines, another uh, effect is, of helicopter parenting is entitlement. Oh. The, the, belief, the, belief that, the belief that they're the center of the universe. I have so many stories. Right. When you treat someone uh, as if they're the center of the universe. Now, when they're 18 months old, they need to believe they're the center of the universe. And that's developmentally appropriate. If you don't treat an 18-month-old like they're the center of the universe, then it, it actually can be a bad thing. But there's a progression away from the center of the universe that is, that is perhaps healthy. So I have a success story. Sure. Uh, so there was recently uh, an auction for my son's middle school, and I thought they did the greatest thing I'd ever seen. The servers were all of the kids from the middle school. And it was like, this is spectacular. And how odd. Um, but this idea that these totally capable 12 through 14-year-olds are going to serve a you know multi-course meal to a bunch of adults in a crowded room i thought like we're going in the right direction here yeah sounds like you're a part of a community that sees the light <laughs> so another effect is self-esteem issues and i've been talking about that during this episode if i can't do it by myself i'm not capable of doing things by myself or what i see in my practice is i don't even have the skills to break the problem down into small enough pieces where I can figure out what I can do and what I need to ask for help. I because would say, someone was always in my head right. doing it for me. Yeah. I mean, that's I'm really working with a lot of my young adult clients on let's not catastrophize. Let's take a breath. Let's look at the smallest steps possible that you are quite capable of moving forward yeah. on this. And um, the idea that the whole thing doesn't have to get solved tomorrow that you can make mistakes along the way and that making mistakes is good will continue that's how you learn right that i think is what helicopter parenting takes away from kids the most yeah the next uh, series of effects have to do with a particular profile to some extent but it's someone who's afraid of everything mm-hmm. they're a nerd kid they 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 have a hard time socializing with people they might not even have any friends they're addicted to video games because it's the only thing that they feel that they can do and because it's the only thing available to them that is the least amount of risk and the and doesn't involve other people really and they also don't have any physical activity mm-hmm. everyone if you're a parent out there uh, i would say a good percentage of you have a child like this that just stays in their room all day and all they do is play video games or maybe there's an adult in your life yeah exactly <laughs> and so in again there's nothing wrong with playing video games but when your child has low self-esteem and is afraid of the world and doesn't have uh, the notion that they can actually do things and doesn't have the track record that they can do things on their own then it's it's a difficult uh thing for kids and 
they'll just turn to video games and they'll isolate and they'll gain weight and they won't move and they'll just stay inside. So t- technically these are known as shut-ins. Yeah. Um, and I've seen it a little bit in my practice, the parents. And at this point, like you need professional help. Yeah. You're not going to solve, you need like wraparound services. You need home visits um, because things have gotten pretty off track at that point. If the kid is really uh, that disengaged. Interesting. Do you know the country where this is the most present? Japan. Japan. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a whole cultural uh, discussion around that, and I could go on and on about the whole thing, but but yeah, certainly Americans aren't the only ones suffering from this. Now, let's talk about some good things, because again, there's good there's pros and cons to helicopter parenting, and I'll just, I just want to talk about some good things. Some good things are is that there probably is less danger of bad things happening to your kid. If you're always there. If you're always there, they're... they're they're not very likely to be abducted and they're not very likely to get hurt physically. So it probably does reduce the amount of accidents and, and abuses that happen to a child. Um, to some extent, I think that it might actually help in some situations attachment with parents, even though very, very close. Yeah. You can be very close <laughs> to your kid in a way that many children would be envious of that they truly felt like their parent really cared and would be there for them at the drop of a hat. That, yeah. that isn't, that, that isn't a bad thing. No. And I think that, uh, you know, that might be, you know, why is this happening in this generation where those kids, so these parents who's, who's, who were parented by people coming out of world war two, you know, didn't get that closeness. And right. then they become these types of parents that are so close right. with their children. Right. So there was a time, it's not like times before were all great. There were some definite downsides to the way people were parenting in the past. And one of the downsides was that parents didn't recognize the importance of developing closeness and and love between parents and children. I think another factor, I don't know if this is in this, but people having children later. Right. So when you have your first child at 40, yeah. you have so much more knowledge about the world and you want to impart all that right. to your kid. Yeah. Um, and what better way to do that than to be around them a lot? And you're a lot less selfish. When you're 22, you're, you're more selfish in Doing general. Doing your own thing. And so you're more likely to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop this kid off at my parents' house and I'm going to have some fun. All right. So let's talk about some solutions. There's a free-range parenting movement. Have you heard of this? Oh, yes. Author Lenore Skenazi on, at her website. Who lives in Brooklyn. Founded in April 20, or 2008. And her book, Free-Range Kids, Giving Our Children the Freedom We Had Without Going Nuts with Worry. So you can read that book. Uh, the, the main solution that I have... There, there are main solutions here. One is, is stop worrying. That's a big... That's, that's hard. It's a big thing. And I, I alluded to, to it earlier. Understand that crime is down, mm-hmm. not up. And I know that you, a lot of people out there listening to that go, oh, Kirk's an idiot. He doesn't know. <laughs> Believe me, I have researched this up and down. I have been asked to talk about this sort of thing from a number of different angles. Uh, for instance, when, whenever there's a disaster on TV or something like a shooting at a school, mm-hmm. uh, immediately, you know, uh, television stations and 
radio stations will contact me. And uh, one of the things I always bring up, because I've looked at the CDC, like, like minutia details and among several different domains of violent crime and around the country and da 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 Since the early 1990s, crime on every level has been down. And there is some school shooting, and obviously the mass shootings are going up. But the shootings in general are, are right. going down. Crime is down, but reporting to and our knowledge of crime throughout the world is up. Right. Which, in the way that our brains process information, makes it feel like it's everywhere. Right. And so one thing is to stop watching the news. I don't watch the news. I don't, I don't read the news. Mm-hmm. I read Reddit because Reddit actually filters out a lot of the news that I don't want to hear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like only the things that I'm interested in, in on the front page anyway, I, I get. But and every once in a while, I'll click on Google News and it's just like, you know, bombing in Bangladesh and, you know, 30 people dead and... Uh, so-and-so was raped and killed. And it, it just like, it gets into your head and it, it, it only produces bad things for me. There's, mm-hmm. When there's a bombing in Bangladesh, what in the world can I do about that? What, what, how, now, to know that bad things are happening in general, I think is okay. And it will help me as a voter and as a, if I can do something like volunteer or something. But if, if, if I read the news every day, it, it ruins my life. It makes me more afraid. And, if, and, you know, and parents out there, I'm sure, are terrified of this sort of thing. So I encourage my clients of, with all kinds of issues to take regular technology Sabbaths. Yeah. You know, for some people, it's a shock for me to tell them, turn your phone off at night. Yeah. <laughs> Just, like, take a break. Even if that break is from 9 p.m. to 7 a.m. Right. Just take a break. But to me, I say... Whether your phone is on or off, stop stop reading the news because the the news is designed to trigger your fear center so you pay attention, which is huge. I mean, if we want to talk about brain development, yeah, you know, we these the media knows what will keep us watching for that minute longer before the commercial comes on, right? And like for instance, I clicked on something because the the Belgium bombings mm-hmm. and. The uh, there was a I, I something triggered the fear in me and I clicked on it, and the entire time it was CNN I think, and the entire time all they wanted to do was talk about how they basically wanted to make the case that Americans are next or something mm. like that. If the American news channel is going to sell their news story, right. they have to make Americans afraid. Right. If it's just about Belgians and Syrians and, you know, it's just about Europe, then Americans, they think, aren't going to watch. And so they, were, they kept twisting all of the details to bring it back to make Americans afraid. Mm-hmm. And it was just interesting. I, I could just see through the BS. I could just be like, you're designing this entire thing. You're, you're spinning every tiny detail in here to make it seem like what the way they were making it sound was they accidentally killed Belgians in their attempt to kill Americans. Do you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking if you're a terrorist and you blow up a Belgian uh, airport, I don't think you're targeting Americans, you know, now are Americans to being targeted? Yes, but not everything has to do with Americans. 
And the other thing is, as I talked about earlier, you want to accept that bad things are going to happen to your kids and not blame yourself and know that it actually builds character in a lot of times. Right. How to tolerate conflict and sadness. Like if we can have a sense of what our plan is when things go bad, when you have a bad day, we're set for life. I thought that the acceptance speech for Inside Out, the... Uh, animated film that just won an- Best Animated Feature at the Oscars. Yeah, I thought it should have won Best Film. But. <laughs> uh, he, the guy was so sweet, and he took the time in his speech to say, you know, for young people out there, if you've had a bad day, turn to the arts. Go home. Make something. Do something. And I was like, right. <laughs> like, this is your chance to let out that life is hard. Yeah. It's full of complexity and sadness and... You know, if we can't teach our kids how to regulate around that, they're going to be in your basement forever. They're going to experience bullying. They're going to experience conflict. They're going to experience loss. And they're going to do it without you. And you'll be there for them and you'll listen. But you you don't have to manage all of that. You don't have to helicopter all of that stuff. Not to say that you shouldn't protect your kids when necessary. Not to say that you shouldn't. Uh, be there to potentially, you know, if they are being bullied, not, you know, this isn't to say you don't step in necessarily, but the pendulum has swung too far. Okay. Another, another solution is stop judging other parents throughout this entire episode. As you can tell, (laughs) I'm really trying to stop the judgment. Everyone, we need to, regardless of how different another parent is parenting their children, you need to not judge them. It is arrogant of anyone to believe that they know the best way to parent and that other parents are doing it wrong. There are obvious exceptions to this. If you see someone in, in the grocery store slap their kid across the face, then by all means, go up to that parent and say, stop that. But if you see a parent going through the grocery store and their kids are being rambunctious or their kids are not being rambunctious enough or whatever, keep your freaking mouth shut because you don't know the circumstances and you're probably just going to harm the situation by trying to step in. Also with regards to friend groups, when you are the next time you and other parents get together and start talking about your parenting, try to throw out the philosophy that there are many different ways to parent and that you don't necessarily know the circumstances that another person is coming from. There's a wide range of acceptable parenting. When families come to me and I have parents, parents that are arguing with each other about different ways of parenting, I've had this conversation thousands of times. I've said, oftentimes I will say, both of you are right, but you both have different ways of parenting. And you can decide to go with your way or you can decide to go with your way. But what you can't do is constantly fight each other about these two ways of parenting. So uh, I'll tell you if one of you is out of the range of, of healthy parenting. There's a lot of ways to parent and there's a lot of options available and just stop judging each other. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so, I mean, I think technically what that means is if your kid didn't get invited to the birthday party, that's okay. Maybe it's because that family needs to only have five kids at that birthday party for that family's sanity. And if the cake is in a pan (laughs) with nothing on it, 
say good for you for not wasting a bunch of stupid money on a stupid cake. <laughs> and if there is no bounty castle, bounty castle, then say good for you for just letting kids make up their own fun. Do you know? I have to tell you this story about my son's birthday party. So uh, too many kids said yes. He, I think we had 12, 12-year-old boys at my house. It was insane. Did it smell bad? It was like so many shoes and backpacks. But anyways, sent them all outside with like eight cardboard boxes and some bubble wrap. They requested uh, scissors and some tape. <laughs> and they were playing this really bizarre version of zombie tag i don't know at one point this kid stopped playing and was limping and i asked him what happened he said he'd fallen over and hit his back but he was like still in the game and i was like this is kind of beautiful kind of scary scary but kind of beautiful kind of beautiful that's right and if another parent came over and saw that and knew what was happening it's 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 in the now maybe it's not what you would have done as a parent but there's many possible healthy ways to parent and that's one of them there's pros and cons another solution understand that children need to sometimes fall on their face and bloody their nose to learn from their mistakes how to get back up so yeah. quick quote about that did you see this eddie izzard ran 27 marathons yeah. in 27 days yeah i'm gonna tear up because it's so beautiful but anyways at the end he ends up at Nelson Mandela's huge statue in South Africa, and he says the Nelson Mandela quote, don't judge me, don't congratulate me for all my successes, congratulate me for how many times I've fallen down and gotten back up. Yeah. Like, you know, that's what we want our kids to do. Yeah. Is A, fall down. Yeah. And B, get back up. Right. Exactly. Do not prevent your children from falling down. Don't. Now again... There's there's a balance. <laughs> you do want to, you know, help your kids avoid harm. But when you take it too far, you're not allowing your kid to fall, to be upset, to be angry, to feel potentially betrayed, <laughs> and to say, damn it, I'm going to get up and I'm going to do it again. And the every time they do that, they learn and they learn that they can depend on others and they can depend on themselves. They have the inner resources to face the world. Another solution, the final one I have here is children need to explore the world without you. I just want to emphasize that. They need to explore free range, you know, within reason, without you. This whole idea is I, I have this sort of vision in my mind of like some helicopter parents hearing this and saying, oh, okay, so I will design a non-helicopter parenting situation for my child. I will design a free range activity. No, they need to do this without you. They need to live like, now again, there's age appropriateness, but you need to let them experience life without you. They need to feel like you're not there. They need to be in a space where they know you don't even know where they're at and that you're not necessarily there to catch them before they fall down. Again, age appropriateness and within reason. And sometimes, given the disposition of a child and given the way you've parented already, you might have to forcibly let them explore the world without you. Mm-hmm. This might mean, you know, they want to go to... They got invited to a birthday party and 
you know they want to go, but they're afraid. Well, you might have to really say it's, you know, I think you should go. And they're, I don't know if, you know, and you got to go, look, you know, it's, this is your friend. And, you know, and again, within reason, you don't want to just throw them in the deep end. But sometimes you have to, with, again, some kids from the age of two, they're running away from you and they never want you around. But some kids are on the opposite end of the spectrum and never really have that overt urge to just, to just, you know, sprint away from you. And for those kids, you might actually have to forcibly make them do things on their own to help them learn how to do things on their own and help them have those moments where they have those opportunities to build character. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it's uh, it's not always easy to do. Yeah. Uh, but in a way, the sooner the better because you're, God forbid, you're not around. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. My practice kind of goes through themes. And every once in a while, I get a whole bunch of people who've lost their parents pretty early. Um, And, you know, that happens. And it's really rough. Um, But we need to teach people that you're going to get through this loss. Um, And I think the sooner you can teach kids that they have the skills to get through loss, the better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good. Well, what's the final word on helicopter parenting, Rebecca? Uh, uh, if the goldfish dies, don't replace the goldfish with another goldfish. Mm. <laughs> Let your kid know that that goldfish died. Mm. And if grandma dies, uh, let the child experience the reality, age appropriateness of that situation. I see a lot of uh, negative things happening when parents try to protect their children from loss like that. And so in the same, in the same vein, my final word is again, there's a wide range of parenting, uh, that is healthy. Parenting is very complicated and there's no, there's no prescription you can follow. It's a art form. It is something that you will make mistakes on and children are different. And so there's different sort of responses you have for different dispositions of children. So I'm just going to say, that overall, I have a wide range of what I, uh, what I deem as acceptable, healthy parenting. Having said that, my guess is, is that as a parent, if you're listening out there, you're thinking, oh, my God, I, I would love to have some free time. <laughs> I, would, I would love to not have my child in, in dance and soccer and blah, 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 and blah, 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 because I, I, I don't have a life anymore. And I would love to just let my kids roam around, but society is going to judge me if I don't do that. Well, you have to ask yourself if you really give a crap about what society says and do your part to spread, as Rebecca did in that one meeting, a new paradigm through our society. When you see another parent doing something that you appreciate, point it out. Say, good for you for letting your kid fall on their face and get back. Good for you for letting the kids roam in the neighborhood with scissors and, and bubble wrap. I, you know, good for you for having no idea what they're going to do with that stuff. And good for you for letting a kid get a limp. That'll build character. That kid will, will learn from his mistake. That parent was incredibly understanding, too. So, so reward that parent and say, thank you so much for our free range kid uh, efforts and do your part to change our society. Because if we all work together, we can change it. 
Yeah, I would say if you're a parent out there, first off, I want to say you're doing the hardest job imaginable in a society that doesn't give you much wiggle room or support, like taking a sick day to take care of your kid is like a huge deal everywhere you go. Um, So you're doing a great job, really, from my heart. And if you feel isolated and overwhelmed, find a good parenting mentor, someone that you really love their stuff. I personally love Dr. Wendy Mogul. She makes me feel like I can do it every day. And if you really need help, there's a great option out there, parenting coaching, where it's mostly over the phone. Because most parents don't have time for family counseling, you know, to get the whole family. I mean, it's there. What you guys do, Kirk, is great. But um, we live in a time where a parenting coach, you can do a Skype session. They can support you over the phone. Like, this job is incredibly hard, and you're not alone in it. Right. Well, that does it for this episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Let us know what you think. You can email us at contact at psychologyinseattle.com. You can also become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. And you can contact Rebecca by going to rbloomatr on Twitter or by going, do you have a website, Rebecca? I have a website, uh, www.bloomcounseling.com. Bloomcounseling.com. Exciting news. My attunement mandala coloring book is in production right now. And you already have a book available called Square the Circle, the Art Therapy Workbook. Ba-bam-bam. Bam. And please take care of yourself out there and take care of your children by not taking care of them all the time. Take a deep breath. Take a bath. Because everyone deserves it. <laughs> <laughs>